Have you ever wondered how successful architecture, engineering, and construction companies scale their business? Or have you ever wanted guidance on how to get more growth, wealth, and freedom from your AEC company? Well, then you are in luck. Hi, I'm Will Forat. And I'm Justin Nagel, and we're your podcast hosts. We interview successful AEC business leaders to learn how they use people, process, and technology to scale their businesses. So sit back and get ready to learn from the industry's best. This is Building Scale. Hey listeners, it's Will here. Our mission is to help the AEC industry protect itself by making technology easy. If you've ever listened to our show, then you know that the three pillars of scaling a business are people, process, and technology. So if you suspect technology is your weak link, then book a call with us to see where we can help maximize your company's IT and cybersecurity strategy. Just go to buildingscale.net slash help. Today on the show, we have the founders of Parspec, Forrest Flager and Pratush Havelia. Forrest developed a passion for housing affordability and sustainability at a young age, which led him to his career in building engineering at Arup in London. He later pursued a PhD in computational design optimization at Stanford before joining the research and teaching team there in 2013. Forrest went on to lead software and design uh, automation at Katera, a technology-driven offsite construction company, before co-founding RSpec in 2021. Uh, spent his career developing AI and automation applications for the construction industry before uh, founding Parspec with Forrest here. Uh, he's excited to be part of the construction's digital revolution and help to improve the speed and transparency of the construction supply chain. Uh, Partouche holds a master's degree from Stanford University uh, and BTech in EE from IIT. Dash R is what that says. So there's a lot of letters there that go into it. But with all that said, uh, welcome to the show, gentlemen. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks very much, Justin. Will, great to be here. So uh, I said this in our pre-interview. If I was a doctor, I would just I would force people to call me doctor. So Forrest, you have way less ego than I do. I'm going to say that right now, just <laughs> off the bat. That would be, I would not respond to anyone, even like my wife. It'd be like, oh, no, it's it's doctor, husband. Like, that's what, it would be that. Um, yeah, so. I think I'd be looking over my shoulder for Dr. Flager, too. I, I think uh, Forrest is just, just fine with me. <laughs> um, so, awesome. So, tell us about, you know, I said some things, but tell us about your origin story, both of you. Um, you know, one, how, how this all came about, and then how did you connect, and then tell us about Parspec. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so origin story does go back to Stanford. Um, we were actually researching uh, basically how we could use computing to look through many design options, right? Help to generate the options and evaluate them. Um, uh, Pratush and I worked together in a, in, a, in a lab there. And one of the challenges we always faced was just finding the product information. You know, what are the different materials and products that go into buildings? What are their technical attributes, right? That you need to assess performance. What do they cost? How long does it take to get them? Sort of like basic information that I think most people that would use e-commerce today, right, would expect to know about the products and materials, a um, little bit of harder to come by in the construction industry. Um, and so Parspec is really aimed at providing better information about products um, 
and there's some technology behind how we do that, but um, that's fundamentally, you know, how it how it came together in terms of the the vision of the company. Bertouche had some ideas around the technology, maybe behind how we can structure that information. I'll let him share a little bit more about how that tech came about. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Forrest. So, so yeah, it's um, it's part of the research group that Forrest was leading, and our job really was to to find ways to optimize the cost and energy consumption of buildings taking into account various parameters. So we, we began with steel as a component of the building to, to better understand and optimize the, optimize the usage of. And uh, just it's, it's interesting how uh, during this process, we've, we've realized that the overall as an industry, the construction industry is really behind when it comes to uh, having a digital database or you know, some digital background where researchers can take certain things as granted and then build applications and algorithms on top of it. And uh, so we, we started at a pretty rudimentary level, but soon we realized that you know, in order to do the, the best job possible to optimize the full building, you need to create that foundation, right? And uh, that's what got me and Forrest really excited. And uh, that's what PASPEC is all about, the vision of PASPEC that eventually there could be a way more digitized and optimized and AI fed uh, construction uh, procurement supply chain, and uh, th there's lots of technology in the back end to power this, uh, uh, mostly around AI. And uh, um, yeah, just uh, look forward to look forward to some uh, pretty interesting disruption here. That's like the epitome of the tech story, right? It's like, hey, let me find this thing that's way behind that nobody's paying attention to, and then let me just dump in technology or, you know, like how can I grasp the data and then use that to advantage? So uh, good, good on you two of seeing, seeing the need and then obviously building company to help, help people. Uh, speaking of, you know, 2001 uh, or sorry, 2021 was not that long ago. Uh, you were like seven people and now you're 33 people. So growth has been a big part of, of the last two years. Uh, tell us about that. Tell us about some of the the ups, the downs, the struggles, roadblocks, things that you've seen that have worked really well and things that maybe haven't worked as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, kind of the fundamental underpinnings are like um, how the team is structured, right? As it grows, we are a geographically distributed team, but I would say we have two centers of excellence. So uh, after Stanford, Pratush uh, moved back to India, he's currently living in Bangalore. I'm here in the Bay Area. Um, and we've tried to co-locate teams around those two geographies, even though those two geographies are halfway around the world. We've got a 12 and a half hour time difference. Um, so both of those offices are hybrid. And I think in terms of, I'll just speak on the U.S. side. I'll let Pratush uh, uh, take the, the team members in India. I, I, obviously, having a solid foundation there is very important um, to sort of spread the culture of the company and the key ideals. I was fortunate enough to have a few, I think the three of the first four team members that I brought on board were people that I had worked with at the past, uh, most of them at uh, Katera, um, which is another sort of startup that was uh, pretty dynamic, right? So you, you have a feel for who's capable of operating in like a high ambiguity you know, different everyday type environment. Um, so I think that was that was very fortunate. And then obviously, you know, 
had a great early fit with um, Zach Mix, who's our account executive who didn't have that background, but knows the lighting and electrical space really well and brought that expertise. So that, that was the sort of like early DNA. And then uh, we've added from there. We can talk a little bit about the collaboration, but before I do that, I'll, I'll let Pratish talk a little bit about the, the growth story on the, on the India side. Yeah, thanks for it. So, uh, yeah, on the India side as well, uh, it's been uh, fairly similar. So I, I more relied on my personal network and uh, secondary network to get the few early engineering leads in the team. And uh, it, it really, uh, I mean, I, I always knew that, that, you know, people finding people, uh, the right folks to build a team, especially in the beginning, is the most important thing. But uh, just that just got more and more uh you know, founded into uh, what I what I believe is, uh, is supposed to be, you know, the way to form a successful company because ideas are easier to change than people, right? Like tomorrow I can have a pivot, uh, but I probably will have the same team. But you want to make sure that the, the team is still motivated enough and equipped and also driven to make sure that, you know, uh, the company sees through the pivot, right? Like all the various challenges that come along the way. So I would say I was fortunate enough to get close to a lot of really talented people in the beginning. And then once uh, you have three or four to set the base up, then from there, it's easier to expand because everybody pitches in with their network as well. It's a positive network effect. And uh, for us, from day one, talent has been clearly the, the higher priority than co-location. So even though we have an office in Bangalore, uh, a lot of our people are scattered across uh, India in different cities mainly because they are just better suited for the role and they have the right mindset and the right motivation to make this happen, to join an early stage startup and then go through all the challenges together and uh, yeah, see, see through the end, see through to the end. So we have a few folks in Bangalore. There's clearly a difference in having people in the same office versus not. Uh, but uh, and to your point earlier about your question about what, ha- what have been the challenges, I would say that's definitely has been one of them to have a clear, effective communication across uh, teams that are situated in different cities of not just the same country, but also, uh, you know, completely opposite, right, on the face of the earth. So like between India and US, there's a huge time difference as well. So that has been uh, definitely one of the challenges, but I think we are handling that well, uh, purely because everybody is individually motivated enough, right, to make sure that we are going towards the goal. Got it. Um, so before we get into full collaboration, so hybrid work is a that's a big thing. Like that's a huge topic. Should people be in the office, not in the office? Should there be a hybrid version of that? How one? How you know? Twenty twenty one certainly in California. I have to imagine people were at home. Like I have to you know think that that's probably the case. So how did that work? Going from People are not in an office, and now people are going to an office at least some of the time. And, and same thing in India, I suppose. Yeah, we um, we moved into an office in October of 21. Before that, we were fully remote. I mean, I, I want to come back to a point you mentioned earlier about, you know, like kind of construction being behind, right? And um, I think it, it plays into the team culture a little bit too, right? Which is... I mean, my belief on one of the reasons behind that is you have some very specific workflows, right? And processes that are unique to construction. And because of that, a lot of sort of like more generalist tech, right? For 
say marketplaces or procurement may not be relevant, right, for this particular industry. And so I think fundamentally that's because the people that really understand the domain are not typically the same people that really understand what's possible, say, with AI, right, and, and or are capable of building those systems. And that's true for our team as well, right? We have people coming with, you know, decades of experience in construction and, and the same on the AI side. And so when we think of what makes an effective team, a lot of that is around how do we share that knowledge, right? And bring both sides up. And so fundamentally, I think the answer is you have to make that a priority, right? People are coming from very different places and you have to allow the space to sort of learn about each respective area. And that is both like on a personal level, right? We also, we have a cultural differences and backgrounds, you know, people growing up in India versus growing up in the U S as well as the technical. And so we've very consciously tried to set up those opportunities, right. For people just to talk about, you know, the industry that they came from or their personal backgrounds, just to facilitate that communication, right. Which is essential to, building a good product or build a good company that really depends on a very multidisciplinary team. And so I guess my, my philosophy is like, that's one of the reasons why sometimes, you know, the, the most advanced tech hasn't made it into the industry. Um, it's because there hasn't been enough of that communication of the experts in those two areas. And um, so, yeah, we, we're tackling that at a, at a company level, just as much as we are, I think at, at an industry level, um, which is fun too. I mean, I think a lot of people enjoy really learning about something that they have no background in, right? And just figuring out really how much is there, right? Um, to learn about. Um, and so that's been a, a learning experience for me and I think a lot of the team. Not to mention, you've got cultural differences of, are you playing cricket or baseball or is it soccer or football, right? Yeah. And which football are we actually talking about here? So, no, there's a lot of cultural differences. Uh, I can see why halfway around the world, you've got, I mean, even to sprout innovation, you have to step a mile in the other person's shoes in order to be able to then connect the two dots, right? Construction versus technology, especially with what you guys are doing. If the other side doesn't know, essentially left hand and right hand don't don't know what they're doing, you're not going to be able to create what you're creating right now. Yeah. So very cool that you're able to that you're able to do that. And I think the industry itself could probably learn a thing or two about how you guys are doing things. So how does so because of the time difference? So like hybrid, so you know that in itself it has its challenges. But now you add in half a day or twelve and a half hours. How does that how does that collaboration work? Like you know some people are sleeping when other people are working. It's almost like you're a twenty four hour shop at this point, just simply based on the location of where you're at. And so how do you how do you get that camaraderie and collaboration when it comes to the two uh, you know uh, hubs of excellence is what I believe you called it for us, which I love. Um, I love that term. Um, first time I heard it, so all about it. So how do you get that collaboration to work? Yeah, well, I think that there's I think there's a heightened sort of importance to those times where it's, I would say, reasonable to meet, right? For, in our case, it's early morning or, you know, sort of like mid, mid-evening, mid depending on how late of a, uh, a night owl you are. 
And so, you know, you have these windows where it's possible to collaborate. Um, and then there's like, what is sustainable, right? Um, so for example, you know, switching between early morning and late evening, I think is difficult for most people, right? So the people that really need to collaborate closely, I think we pick a, you know, we pick one of those two, right? So, you know, a few nights a week or a couple of days a week, right? One person is, you know, it's late, late evening, early morning. And I think you have to come up with a schedule pretty quickly that is sustainable, right? Where people are not going to feel like um, they're not able to live their lives, right? Because they have to meet off outside of typical working hours to collaborate. Um, so that's one element of it, just the practical of like, what do we think is reasonable? And how do people like to work? Certain people are morning or evening. It's not going to work for everyone, but coming to that consensus where people are really bought in. Um, and the second is you have to make it fun, right? Like um, where it's not always, because, you know, it is outside of working hours. So try to do a little bit of social, a little bit of like fun activities during those times as well. Um, I mean, I guess we were talking earlier around like, you know, a virtual happy hour, which is, uh, uh, which is, I think a lot of companies use a lot of people maybe don't know what that means or haven't seen that work if it's totally like unprogrammed time. The nice thing about 12 and a half hours is the drinks are very different. Uh, <laughs> so you, you have a point of conversation around, uh, you know, mimosas versus, uh, you know, whiskey on the rocks. Um, yep. but, uh, but we're also like trying to schedule that time as well. Right. Where you have like an activity to do, you're playing a game. And so that I would say makes it a little bit less awkward, particularly in the beginning. Right. When, um, just like free flowing conversation, um, may just seem a little bit difficult, right. To start things up. So just investing the time, right. To really like plan out the activities and try to find something that everyone would enjoy. Yeah. To, to build up on that. I mean, that's, uh, absolutely uh, what we uh, what we really value, right? Like the uh, the midway times, early mornings, and sort of late mid to late evenings. Uh, but even after that, the reality is that most of the day uh, there isn't uh, too much life coordination because of the 12, 12 hour gap. So what helps a lot there is uh, just structuring around what each person is responsible for, like clearly laying out the goals and. Uh, whether they are long-term goals or short-term goals and short-term can be like bi-weekly sprint-wise or it could be even a couple of days or, or things only meant for that single day. And what that helps with is even if the other part of uh, the team, other half of the team is not available, the, the first half is not uh, blocked, right? They know what to do and we can wait uh, until the other half of the team is available to carry on uh, for the remainder of the work. So uh, it does mean that some meticulous planning is required, more, more meticulous than what I, what I would think is, is an average case where everybody is available in the same office. Uh, but there's a, there's a way to, to make it happen. And uh, there are advantages to doing that. I mean, in, just because we, we do value meticulous planning because of the time difference and various other, and few other factors, it helps us keep our uh, metrics in check. Right, and it helps us keep our uh, goals uh, aligned and make sure that we're not uh, missing out on too many deadlines and all those things. Yeah. Uh, and the second uh, one part uh, that you mentioned earlier is that we are a 24-hour shop. We actually have seen advantages of that uh, because it's a software. So during the U.S. work time, if somebody reports a critical bug in the application, 
Uh, by the time everybody goes to sleep in the US, the engineering team wakes up in India and they have a chance to fix it. So many times it's possible that you report something in the evening of a, of a Wednesday in the US and by Thursday morning, it's already resolved. So uh, sometimes that that works to our advantage as well. Yeah. Nice. What about the two of you? Like, are you, obviously you have to do some form of you know planning, and I know Pratush, you're currently in the Bay Area right now, so maybe this is when this time is happening for Q3. But those conversations usually go a little bit longer in generality, right? So it's like it's one thing to have a hour, two hours, you know, have a night slash morning meeting. It's different when it's like, hey, we need to like really put in like six to eight hours together. Like that seems like you have there has to be a, a different setup there. What does that look like uh, when it comes to more strategic planning? Yeah, it's a good good question. We um, we haven't managed the day long virtual call yet, um, although you know we have had you know you know sessions for two three hours at a time, right? That sometimes we'll go into the middle of the night. Producer probably laugh at me, but I have a I have a seventh month old daughter now, so like the Ooh. the time scales get a little bit, you know, like what time of day it is gets a little bit jumbled. So whether it's you know three in the morning or three in the afternoon, sometimes doesn't really matter to me. So that that makes it a little bit uh, easier. Uh, the but, advantages of not yeah. sleeping with a child. Okay, now now I'm hearing it. <laughs> they didn't tell me about yeah. these advantages when I had my son, so uh, I was unaware. So, uh, so that's all how you happy accident. It. One congratulations because that's awesome, yeah. and two happy. Happy accident that uh, you you get weird times. You're just awake at weird times. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but I think the reality is, is like you you're gonna have to moderate those sessions, right? You can't have the same like extended intensity of like an offsite planning where you're kind of like at it for eight hours. Like I don't think, at least like for Patricia and I, that hasn't worked. So you know, we might have to split that over several days if you're not able to you know, make it there in person. And we're, you know, we're trying to make the effort to to find those times to spend some time with the, the rest of the team, not just ourselves around those, you know, offsites or planning sessions. But the reality is that we also have, you know, him and I have these planning sessions, but it's usually just a couple hours at a time. Got it. Yeah. Um, it's, speaking of planning, so goals, what, you know, you're, you're still a very young company, you know, just talking about two, a little over two years old. So like, what, what are those goals? Like, how do you, like, what timelines do you put goals in? Um, and then what, what are the structure or what are those goals coming, coming here for 2023, 2024 and beyond? Yeah. Well, I'll talk about process first, right. And then maybe get into the specific goals. Sure. I mean, I think you sort of have the, the sort of vision mission, level goals right with even with a young company I, I think it's helpful to revisit those occasionally right as the company learns and grows but i would say those are probably on like the annual sort of time frame that we really like seriously look at those right um and then you know in terms of actual like the metrics that drive the success of the business those are typically set quarterly and reviewed monthly at sort of like a company-wide level. Um, so those that's sort of the cadence. The goals that we're looking at, and we haven't talked too much about, you know, the products that, um, that Parspec has in market and plans to have, um, but our, our customers are uh, sales agents and distributors of lighting and electrical products today. So we talked earlier about like the big vision of Parspec 
and the data that we hope to bring to the industry. We're starting with lighting and electrical products. The value we offer today is around one very specific part of the process, which is putting together uh, what's called a product submittal, which is essentially a set of documentation, uh, a data sheet essentially associated with every product that uh, that is planned to be bought, right? So that you can get approval from the design team uh, that those products meet the requirements. That's a tedious process today. You know, sellers are typically going to manufacturer websites, downloading information, marking that up with configuration information, and then sending that off as a book to their customer. We're automating that part of it, right? Um, and so where we go from here, it also is relying on the data, but expanding the offering vertically, right? So we're helping our customers now uh, or planning to release this shortly in October, the ability to, once they have a set of requirements, we can automatically identify the products from manufacturers they work with that meet those requirements programmatically, um, which helps them deliver a quote or recommendations to their customer much more quickly, right? So think of reducing the time to quote by 50 to 80%. Um, that's fundamental for these uh, businesses, right? And then we can support the downstream process, which are submittals, operation and maintenance packages, right? So the I would say the, the goals for this year are expanding the product offering to be able to help our customers uh, with those aspects of their their workflow. That's huge. Like, yeah. so hold on, like 60%, especially when it takes hours, days, or even weeks to go through the entire quoting process, right? Uh, depending on how large the project is, that's humongous. And then keeping up to date with all the pricing from all the many different manufacturers, there's like a lot of problems that you're solving there. So being able to have almost a marketplace of where you can get all of that in one place is massive. Like the oh, time yeah. spent... I'm sure that's a brain cramp just trying to go through like the different types of parts. Holy cow. Like, I hope people are hearing this. This is huge. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's really just recognizing the value that our customers had, right? If you just, if you study what's involved in the quoting and submittal process, as you mentioned, a lot of that is like, you're looking for information, right? You're like trying to find data sheets or you're trying to find products that meet requirements, or you're looking at pricing. And I think that's, you know, those kind of like low hanging, I would say like less skilled tasks or something that, you know, we're trying to leverage technology to solve. We want uh, those, uh, you know, salespeople or product managers to be able to spend time with their customers, engage with them, figure out what their needs are, right? Not like in back of house things like looking up product information, uh, you know, emailing manufacturers to try to get pricing, like those things that probably aren't the most fun things to do, but take a lot of time to in today's process. Mm -hmm. I mean, to add to that, um, the reality is that, uh, as you said, uh, Will, that there's so many product options available and it's only increasing, right? Like every day, new manufacturers are coming in, new technologies are coming in. Uh, there are new laws, right, like that force uh, products to be more energy efficient. So there, there are various factors uh, due to which new options are available. And uh, without having a comprehensive data set that makes it easy to compare different products, the reality becomes that uh, apart from the most enterprising uh, companies, uh, people don't uh, care to explore too much because it's 
it's not possible so i've i've been uh, part of uh, design teams before where it's people mostly rely on experiential knowledge and everybody aims to get more knowledge uh, of products that is available out there in the market but it, it's just it's very hard to do it so when you get a new project let's say a new hospital building came in the first thing that comes to mind is what did i use for the last hospital building that i designed in a similar location and similar uh, you know parameters and that's where the search begins instead of uh, really putting in or you know the, the main technical specifications behind what is required uh, for me to select a product and then uh, searching through uh, a comprehensive database right like we don't have that technology yet uh, but it's it's a solvable problem and uh, yeah that's that's uh, something that we we aim to do wow yeah no that's um it's you know you mentioned earlier about construction experts and technology experts you know and, and how the crossover has to that that has to be like you have to have the collaboration and the crossover and they have to work together to get to solutions and this is the, the, your your business is the prime example of how that has to work because if you don't know that there's this huge quoting you know specking out you know problem or they they don't even know it's a problem because just this is the way we do it like this is just you know I don't know what there is no other way to do it but in, if you don't get those construction people uh, with the technology people this never this never births into into a reality. Yeah, there is a, I would say Patricia was kind of touching on, I would say some interesting dynamics, right, in the industry, because it's, there's always the question of like, why now? Like, why does this technology make sense now? And I think part of it is, you know, that the sort of on the, on the AI side, like the capabilities are existing, but I would say it's worth noting some changes to, you know, definitely the lighting and electrical market. And I think it also affects other product categories and construction, which I would say there's a few trends, right? One is uh, the number of products and the number of manufacturers is increasing exponentially, right? Over, you know, say the past decade, right? Uh, particularly for lighting with LED technology, it's just made it, there's so many different products available, right? And then, you know, supply chains are becoming more complex um, and more global. So things like changes in pricing or lead time are becoming much more frequent, right? And so you compound those two factors of, you know, many more products in market, much more dynamic sort of changing to that information. And suddenly like conventional methods of like, I'm just gonna study the catalog or, you know, I've done this for 10 years. And so I know what's in the market. Like it starts to become intractable like for a human, even an experienced expert in the industry, just to keep track of like what's available and how the market is changing and to keep their customer up to date. And I think that those dynamics are like very real in the industry today. So there's sort of like this imperative to do something different, right? Because the market is changing underneath the experts in the industry. And so, you know, they're sort of actively looking for hey, we need to change the way we're doing business. Like we're not able to offer the level of service that our customers expect, right? Or what's going to be required to make us a, a leader in the market. So go ahead, Justin. Oh man, we're going back and forth. You'd mentioned 
AI, obviously having vast experience in this prior to, you know, six months ago when everyone learned that chat GPT was a thing, you, we see this growing and, you know, obviously as, as us, as a technology company, we see, you know, we, we see the vision of like, oh yeah, this is like, this is going to make past technology growth look silly. Like it's going to explode. It's going to work so fast that we're going to, you know, going from the internet and like how quickly that changed our lives. It's like, yeah, AI is going to, this is going to make that look not like nothing. Like it's going to be like a blank AI. Where, where do you see um, essentially accessibility to AI now for businesses? So obviously you're building a product that is utilizing that. Um, in the construction space, who's far behind, uh, just kind of across the board, like, do you see it as in this is going to help the small business? This is just going to make the enterprise level just way more dominant or maybe the middle market? Where, where's your kind of vision on how AI is going to really impact construction? I mean, I think AI is going to fundamentally change every business, not just construction. I, I mean, I think, um, you know, the large language models that we've seen are at a consumer level, right? I mean, they're accessible to any of us. Most of us have tried those models. I think as it affects our business, we have to be very conscious of, uh, at, a, at a super general sense, like make versus buy, right? Like there's uh, big players in this market. They're developing incredible, I would say, generalist technology, right? And, you know, Parspec would never compete with, you know, one of the several large players that are building large language models, right? So knowing when we can leverage that technology that's sort of fast moving and and when we need to develop our own, right? So this isn't directly answering your question of like, how is the sort of like industry going to benefit? I think that to me, that's like, it's going to be ubiquitous, right? It As a technology business using AI, it has fo forced us to think very carefully about, you know, how, how what, what do we really need to build from scratch? What is our competitive advantage? How hard is it going to be for others to enter into this market? And I can talk a little bit more about my philosophy there, specific to that business, but I think that's, yeah, that's, that's how it's affecting us, I would say. Yeah. And yeah, to, uh, again, on top of it, so smaller companies, We've, we've seen that the processes are more or less, I mean, fundamentally the same. They're, they're different in certain aspects because of the scale. Uh, but even in small companies, people are still looking out for, there's a phase when they're looking out for products and putting uh, quotes together and comparing quotes from different reps and putting a final version of the bid document together. That fundamentally happens in large companies as well. So there's not too much of a difference between how the application of AI for a particular uh, process in the supply chain would differ too much between the large and small companies. Yeah, so so that's that's one point. And the other one is, in general, how uh, it would affect the construction industry is that it. I, I think it would uh, bring the practitioners, the uh, you know, the, the stakeholders closer to the actual decisions that they have to make uh, to ensure that their businesses are thriving, rather than spend a lot of time doing redundant and manual work that automation can clearly handle, right? Like, like one thing is being having the accessibility to a comprehensive uh, product database and the ability to compare all products in that database from you know, using a particular given parameters. Like if I, if I wanted to 
just quickly get you know do a search of bring me all chandeliers that are black in color have five bulbs of 1000 lumens and above there's no way to do that right now and Not AI, yet is the yeah, that's okay. the right term right <laughs> yeah and ai can provide it right like and then the final decision on of which product is best suited for my project that's the most critical right like for for a company because that affects their ongoing business and the quality of the bid documents that they can put together and that also informs what future businesses they can get uh, the success of this particular business so uh, ai can help there right like another example is people spend a lot of time right now in just uh, going through really cumbersome large blueprint documents that are 100 pages and above easily in pdfs right like and they i've seen people literally take printouts and have a lens on their working table and go through their document and figure out some part numbers using a lens so we, we are obviously ahead of that <laughs> yeah right so let's uh, solve that problem right like ai can solve it and then bring out the information that people need so that then they can act intelligently on it hey everybody justin here thank you so much for listening to this episode As you know, Will and I are business nerds and love talking to leaders who've scaled their businesses using people, process, and technology. If that's something that gets you all jazzed up too, then do me a favor and hit the subscribe button. Don't forget to hit the little bell so you get notified every time we drop a sweet new episode. And if you know somebody who'd be an awesome guest on the show, send them our way. Just go to buildandscale.net/guest. Now, back to the episode. You're solving, I mean, you're solving a time issue that people some people know because the coding process it it can sort of kill them in the amount of time that's being spent, especially there's one other piece that you're addressing which is the issues around the specs that are needed for submittal versus human error, right? And that happens too. This is why litigation happens in the industry. One of the thousand reasons that litigation happens in the industry. Do you feel that by essentially you're simplifying the process, right, where you're now able to just put in a few keywords and it'll spit back out kind of the things that you're looking for or a selection reduces your selection and it makes it a lot easier to find, right? So that would that be fair to fair to say? Yes. So and the industry has been very resistant in using technologies that just in general right would you is that also fair to say yeah I, i would say that in general right it's been harder to get adoption right within construction there's several reasons for that that's true true statement yeah. yeah the companies that are that you are, that you are talking to that are successful with this how is their mindset different from the ones that maybe are behind. Yeah, I mean I think I think there are tailwinds, right? What which we discussed earlier which is that the market is changing, right? And so customers are sort of there's an imperative to act, right? Because the existing processes are no longer serving the customer, right? And so I think that helps. Of course, you still have an adoption curve, right, in any industry. And I think from a strategic point of view as a startup it's identifying those customers right that 
that are looking for uh, looking for a solution. And if you're asking like what the characteristics of those customers are, I think we're still like largely educating. So we're still like, we're making the first contact with these customers. So obviously anyone that's coming to us, like I would say in general, right, is, is looking for a different way of doing things. But I would say that the leadership there typically has a plan of like certain improvements that they want to make, right? And they're not typically biased about like how they go about achieving those improvements, right? And so I would say like a characteristic is you're just open-minded to different ways of solving the problem, which I mean, sounds very simple, right? But I think a lot of, it's very easy as a leader to feel like you you know what the solution is, right? And you're kind of like marching along a plan and then, yeah, you, so you wouldn't be open to like entertaining these new ideas. And so new companies to market, we're one of them, right? And so there's an open-mindedness to just hear like what, what we're doing and how that might help them. And so first is just like listening to the solution. And then if it makes sense to them, they actually have like a very well-defined idea of how to drive adoption within the company, right? Because for some middles and quoting, especially for larger companies, we're talking about, you know, work that hundreds of people are doing, right? Hundreds of people are going to be using the application within their company. And so if you're, if you're not experienced or thoughtful about managing that deployment, then, then it's obviously harder to succeed, right? And so obviously we're, we're there to help and support that. But I would say those are the characteristics, right? They, um, they're looking, they, they have business problems that they want to solve. They're open-minded as to the solution. So they, they give us a chance to explain what we're doing. And then they, they put a plan in place, right. To ensure that everybody is leveraging that technology. If once there's a, you know, once we've proven the value there. So would you also say these leaders, are they fearful? The ones that are looking to adopt, you know, technology like yours, are they more or less fearful of like outcomes? Like, are they, you know, because they're always looking, you know, for an outcome and the industry has been burned by technology, which is kind of, which is interesting. It's the reason why they're also behind on on technology, right. In implementing technologies is because of that kind of, they've been burned. And so they're staying away from it. Would you say that? Oh, go ahead. Would you say that there, would you say that, the leaders that are kind of being more innovative, are they fearful also or no? Yeah, I mean, I think any leader is nervous about uh, like two things when adopting new technology, right? It's like, is it going to deliver the value that I think it will deliver, right? And then like, uh, are is my team going to use it? And I think we've tried to, and we've done a couple of things to make that easier, right? So I think, yes, they, they're fearful. I think any good leader is nervous about those things. Um, the first is like we offer a free trial, right? So during that period, customers should be able to like validate the value prop. Like, are we actually able to, you know, save somebody time in making a submittal or produce a higher quality submittal? And the second is like, once the value is there, like, is the team going to use it? And so I think our pricing model also is geared towards making that easier, which is, it's a usage based model. Right. So if you're nervous about usage, like you're paying based on the usage and therefore the value that your customers 
succeed, you know, are you, and so that makes it easier, right? They don't have to buy uh, a bunch of seats, not knowing if uh, customers are going to use it. That still doesn't take away all the risk, right? But we've tried to make it sort of less risky for that decision maker by implementing those two things. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting point that uh, Forrest touched on that, you know, the pricing of the product and just the value offering of the product in itself, as well as the product design, like they, they all uh, combine towards right, solving that fear of the outcome, right? Like if it's uh, if it's not too much of a leap from what people are currently trained to do at an office, from you know from what they are using to to going to a different software, it makes it easier to try things out. And if they don't work for you, then it also should be easy to offboard right from it. So it it works well for isolated solutions, which is uh, what we are focusing on right now. Would be interesting to see how, how when we move towards more integrated solutions, how that evolves, right? One other thing that uh, you touched on earlier, what Forrest said that uh, there are many reasons why companies in construction don't adopt software, or not that they don't, but there's a certain hesitation or more inertia. There are many reasons, right? Like one of the reasons that I have observed is uh, just the fragmented application or the the, the substitute of that software, the solutions that form that substitute, they are very fragmented, right? Like for coding, let's say, like some people are just doing it on Excel files. Uh, and on the other extreme, uh, some people, some offices have developed their own proprietary solutions that help help them with uh, doing uh, that particular kind of a job that they used to do that better. So we have a huge spectrum, right? Like it's not uh, that uh, there are just two or three other solutions and that's exactly how each solution works. So to design a software product, that person A from the other end of the spectrum feels easy to onboard to uh, at, at the same level as, as person B from the other end of the spectrum becomes a product design challenge. And if you do that well, then it makes it easier to, to sell the product and also have people adopt it because... At the end of the day, if there's a, a solution that saves people time, they'll go for it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, just have to ensure that they all, all the surrounding factors, because of which they haven't done it before, they are taken care of. So, well, there's also a phenomenon that I, I think is worth mentioning here, like, that I think rarely happens with technology, but it does happen. It's, you know, more of like a leapfrogging, right? Which is, um, and I think AI, like, offers that, like opportunity, right? Which is one of the reasons people don't adopt technology, right? Is because it's difficult to use, right? So there may be features where, you know, there's a there's an advantage to doing like advanced product search, right? But it takes a, a bunch of effort, right? To structure your data in that way. And so because of that, all but the largest customers may not be willing to put in that effort, right? To have like their own structured database well, then you get a a disruptive technology like AI that can do that automatically. And now that's just instantly available with no effort, right? Um, And so I think that's part of what could happen here and in general with AI technologies in construction, which is because AI, I would say generally is like really capable, easily to understand natural language and natural speak. So you can formulate a query about a product in natural language and the system knows what to look for, right? And so that's very natural to people versus having to formulate like a 
you know, something that a computer can understand. And so I think we're going to start to see those type of technologies where um, it's just made much more accessible to the audience. There's less time to train or less time to set up these systems to leverage it. And ultimately, that's going to, you know, I think drive much uh, adoption much more easily, right? And so I think we AI could present that to industries like construction that, you know, maybe, you know, didn't fully adopt, you know, e-commerce because of some of these challenges, right? And now it's suddenly easier and you see that type of adoption and they never went to the, those traditional systems, right? Just straight to an AI enabled system. That's a leap. That's definitely a leapfrog. That's the definition right there. Yeah. That's a super frog. That's not. <laughs> so have any cybersecurity concerns ever been brought up uh, by the industry in trying to, let's say, use your platform? Yes. This data, depending on the data, can be very sensitive. So in particular, you know, the, the product technical spec may be less sensitive, but the product, say pricing, for example, is. And so, you know, customers are interested in, you know, who has access to this data? What are we doing to protect this information for our customers? And Pertucci are probably best qualified to answer answer that but this the short answer is will you know absolutely as administrator security is um very important and why Patrice is, is getting set up here i mean i think um i'll talk just briefly about private yeah the the security right so we we have a cloud-based system um we're using like the latest uh, security requirements which are SOC 2 compliance but it, it is interesting to note that I think some customers are still nervous about whether the cloud like is secure uh, today, right? And so some, you know, had previously been using on-premise systems. And so we are educating them, right? That they can have the same level of security uh, using our system as they would with an on-prem server uh, storing that information. I mean, the question we always ask when anyone says the cloud secure versus, you know, our on-premise site, can a person throw a brick through the window of your of your you know site of of work? If they can, you know it's kind of similar, right? It's just there's a level of security and other processes are around it. So anything can be secure or unsecure. It's just is there a process around it? Can someone will say audit it or verify it? And SOC two is a great compliance uh, to have an audit trail behind. That's great yeah. that, you're, that you're doing that. Awesome. And I, I think more generally, right, other than you know the security compliance, which I say is like table stakes, right? It's I think it's being very clear with your customer on how you're utilizing the data, right? I mean, people have just from you know the consumer world, people, you know, they have that experience, right, of other companies that have used data in ways that they didn't suspect or maybe they weren't comfortable with. And so now it is a question that we get often, right? Customers expect to know exactly how their information is being used. And so we've just taken the stance of being very upfront. And, you know, for people that are curious about that, you know, we use it to improve our own algorithms and to provide better recommendations, right? But like, we're not sharing that information with any third party and we're not sharing data in a way that could identify any particular customer or any particular supplier, right? It's, um, it's anonymized in a way, in that way. Yeah, I mean, cybersecurity just really comes down to choice and priority. 
right? Like for a company, it's a, it's a solved problem. Um, even if everything is hosted on a cloud, it, it still can be, it's very secure at the end of the day, uh, especially if you're relying on the large and the proven cloud providers like Amazon and Google. Uh, it just uh, becomes, on, uh, comes down to as a company, how you plan to uh, prioritize it. Right, like if if that is something that as a company you're working on, then the customers know that uh, they're they're in good hands, right? Like it's it's not uh, like there's a technological block that we don't know how to keep data secure. Uh, so so that knowing that it helps us being more confident in portraying uh, to our customers that uh, the data is in good hands. So obviously. Cybersecurity is important, especially for those that are more frontlining on the innovative side that are looking at your technology. They are looking also at cybersecurity hand in hand with improving. So they're not sacrificing one over the other. They're looking at both when looking at your technology. So that kind of says something about the mindset and profile of you know, the construction industry, sort of the innovators, the ones that are far you know, ahead of the curve and the ones that are probably going to make the most money because of how competitive it will make them. It's interesting to just point out that fact that that's where their mindset is versus how is cybersecurity gonna cost me more money, right? They're looking at it as a competitive advantage. So I just wanted to point that out because I've heard this multiple times in different ways in the industry. So this is a great, great way to, you know, mm -hmm. uh, way to show that. A absolutely true. And I, I mean, I don't have the experience of to know what this was like even five years ago, but I will say like today, as I mentioned, it's like, it's table stakes, right? Like literally every enterprise customer that we've had in the early stages has requested details here, right? Around exactly how the data is being used and what we're doing to secure it. I think five to 10 years ago, I'm not sure we would have seen the same you know, level of interest, like very early on in conversations with customers around that. But, you know, I don't have that firsthand experience to know if that's changed, but it, it feels it feels different to me in the last last few years. Very yeah. interesting. For, I mean, for sure. Five years ago, talking about cybersecurity to a general contractor or anybody, it was kind of like, yeah, it's a thing. We know it exists. There's bad guys. We're okay with it. But today it's like, shit, my insurance premiums went up for cyber insurance, like significantly. So now I'm going to start paying attention or yeah, we're, there's just too many, too much news of, you know, people being hacked, pipelines being hacked, you know, like government agencies being hacked that like, I have to get this under wraps. So especially when you get into a larger enterprise client, they're like, there's the risk is just too high, like to not have somebody that's overseeing that and checking and making sure that that's all buttoned up. Um, it just starts becoming like a well, this is just me not wanting to run this business anymore because mm -hmm. it's it, it becomes very inevitable if you don't have control of your data. Yeah, uh, it's been great talking to both of you, but we've got one last question for you that we uh, we love dearly. So uh, each of you individually, if you could go back 20 years since 2003, what would you tell yourself? What advice would you give your younger self uh, 20 years ago? Should I start, Patricia? Yeah, please go for it. Yeah. Um, wow, so many things. Uh, thinking back to my mind state at that time, related to, I guess, career, I think to not be afraid 
to try something new, right? Uh, I think like coming out of university for me, coming from like a middle class background, I had this thing of like needing this the steady job, right, and being uh, just being reluctant, right, to take a big risk and to try a new idea, and basically f- afraid of failing. I mean, it just took me, you know, many years of being in that career to know that like those are the projects that I r- really love and also to know that like if something doesn't work out there are other opportunities down the road right and so that that would definitely be you know w- what I would tell myself I kind of you know wish I had you know kind of had the had the guts to try to build a company earlier in my career but definitely glad I'm getting that opportunity now yeah what you Pratish yeah it's a good one uh well i was uh, i was in seventh uh, grade at the time so uh, not yeah not too much uh, from a career perspective actually well there are many things of course right like but from a career perspective i would say i would uh, i would tell myself just to be a little bit more more self critical and not be afraid of taking hard decisions earlier instead of uh, being more hopeful and seeing how things play out uh having the ability to rip the bandit off in many situations i think uh if i was better at that and uh that, that's something i'm striving to be better at even right now but uh that, that uh something uh, i i feel like 20 years back if i told myself would help a little bit more yeah that's it's good advice for a 13 year old self i suppose uh you may you may be the youngest person that we've interviewed on the podcast uh that's so there's that win for you so look at you you you're already <laughs> famous so if anybody wanted to get in contact with either of you or parsec what's the best way they can do that uh they can go through our website if they're interested in learning more or contacting the team and you know I'd be quite willing to share our personal details I want to speak to produce my personal details like with this podcast I encourage people to you know just contact myself directly if you just want to reach out and Pratish are you comfortable sharing that information as well absolutely i am yeah. i'm also present on linkedin and uh pretty uh, responsive there so would would love to uh, to connect with anyone who's interested okay great i will uh, throw your uh, details in the show notes there as long as well with all the prospect stuff um is there anything else you'd like to tell the people before we say adios i just want to give uh uh will you you and justin like a great shout out it's been Uh, it's been great getting to know you guys a little bit and uh chatting here and uh we look forward to helping to make sure this gets the audience it deserves so thanks a lot awesome thank you so well, much thank you both have been amazing and we're we're excited to really share so yeah to all of our listeners that's all for today and until next time adios adios thank you thanks for listening to building scale to help us reach even more people please share this episode with a friend colleague or on social media. Remember, the three pillars of scaling a business are people, process, and technology. And our mission is to help the AEC industry protect itself by making technology easy. So if you think your company's technology pillar could use some improvement, book a call with us to see how we can help maximize your IT and cybersecurity strategy. Just go to buildingscale.net Slash help. And until next time, keep, keep building, building scale. scale.